Hi, my name is Jeremy Jensen, and I'm a public school educator in the Denver metro area. I'm on a quest, a quest to learn from as many educators out there as possible about the innovative approaches that are making learning authentic and meaningful. It's a very different world today than when our current education system was established, and I've been incredibly fortunate to have had opportunities to get to know some amazing educators who are working tirelessly to adapt to this new and evolving world. One common thread among these inspiring educators, I've come to find out, is their ability to balance both a passion to make progressive change with a humility and understanding that they don't have all the answers. Hence the name of this podcast, Humble Badass Educators. It's often easy to identify what's not working in our current education system, but it's a lot harder to figure out what changes really are having the most success. I invite you all to join me on this journey to hear about the secret sauce from the educators out there who are positively impacting our landscape. In fact, that's the point of this show, so that these ideas can hopefully be spread far and wide. Today's guest is Marnie Gully, a secondary literacy specialist for Denver Public Schools. Previously, Marnie served as a peer observer in DPS after working as a high school English teacher. In our conversation, Marnie talks about being a constant lead learner and approaching working with school and teacher leaders with a mirrored approach to what we want to see teachers do in the classroom. She discusses DPS's innovative teacher leadership structure, where veteran teachers take school-based leadership roles while still remaining in the classroom part-time. She discusses many of the methodologies that she has employed to be a thought partner for the instructional leaders she has worked with in her roles, including learning the powerful cognitive coaching approach. She digs into DPS's comprehensiveness and holistic teacher evaluation framework known as LEAP. She talks about DPS's next steps in equity related to the the hows of culturally responsive teaching, including exposure and practice to grade level text and cultivating rich connections to personal lives. Thanks as always for tuning into today's episode with humble badass educator Marnie Gully. Hey Marnie, thank you so much for joining me today for Humble Badass Educators. It's great to be here. It's great to see you. It's been a while. I know, so nice to see you and I really truly feel like seeing people on Zoom now is really seeing people. I used yes, to think exactly. it was like fake, but I was like this is the best. This is our connection now. Yep. <laughs> uh, Marnie, let's get right into it. Um Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. What makes you a badass and where does that intersect with humility? Sure. Great. Um, my name is Marnie Gully. My current role is a secondary literacy specialist in Denver Public Schools. Um, I've been in education a long time. I taught high school English for many years in a couple of different districts in the metro area. Um, then I was in DPS as um, a peer observer. That's a type of teacher, coach, and evaluator. And now I'm in this role. Um, I'm also a mom, and so see education through that lens a lot as well. Um, I have two daughters in high school, and I have a new little boy with me who isn't school age yet, but definitely like picking up uh, how how we learn through him at about two years old. Um, I I will go for the humble question first. <laughs> um, definitely just have found through. Um, through maturing into this education world, that um, humility is a huge asset. Um, we, I feel like I constantly just grow and learn through other people, through experiences. I often joke that like not much is original, but I know like the right people to ask or the right resources to find. Um, 
I would say uh, that that has served me really well. Um, really just feel like I'm a constant lead learner, if you will, and um, approaching situations that way has, has um, just grown me and hopefully supported uh, the folks I get, to, I get to work with on a daily basis. I want to talk a little bit about um, DPS's um, structure. They have a pretty atypical teacher leadership um, structure and system in place. Um, I think a lot of other districts kind of look to them as well to see what, um, you know, how structure, how things can be restructured uh, to support something that could be a little bit different to share more leadership. Can you describe the system that DPS uses for some of the listeners? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of how many years back this was. Uh, uh, time is so weird right now, but <laughs> maybe it was uh, seven years ago, DPS um, moved to a teacher leadership structure where um, within every building, of course, there are administrators, but then there are um, often more veteran teachers who um, have wanted to stay in the classroom, but also take some steps towards um, leading and sharing their knowledge in new ways. So they've been named teacher leaders um, within their school. They usually support a group of other teachers in a multitude of ways. They um, often lead some planning and data team meetings. They also become coaches and evaluators to those teachers in their system. That, that's, I think, probably the most different part of it from other structures. Um, just, I think the purpose of all that is just really to, A, continue to um, give teachers a growth path in their career. Like, a lot of folks I talk to like want to be with kids and in the classroom, but also want to like keep advancing in their own um, knowledge and skills. And then a B, just like developing a true sense of like shared leadership in a building so that we don't have one or two holders of all the knowledge and all the power um, and can it really have some uh, diverse perspectives and representation in, in supporting teachers to, to grow. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about um, yourself? You said that you're currently a literacy specialist and then previously you were a peer observer, kind of a coach for other teacher leaders and teachers and administrators and whatnot. Can you kind of describe how those roles have um, played a part in that system that you just described? Yeah, so um, in my current role, in my previous role, um, a lot of my work was to support those teacher leaders, knowing that we're kind of a, a tiered support structure. So asking someone to um, be both teaching and doing all this powerful leadership work at a school is, is really hard work. So um, I've had the privilege to train some of those folks um, in best practices around evaluation and coaching, now around uh, best practices in literacy instruction, kind of um, do, do for these teacher leaders what we're asking them to do for teachers and what we're asking teachers for do, to do for students. I kind of see that as, as a very like mirrored approach. And it's, it's, it's so fun. You were, I, again, I learn just as much, I think, as, as they do, seeing um, different approaches, um, often just acting as a thought partner with folks. I would say one of the strongest trainings I've had myself that has served me well in this work is um, cognitive coaching. So coming alongside um, leaders to help them just um, reflect, be metacognitive, um, in their own growth, and I see real power when 
um, adult learners get the time and space to do their own facilitated thinking. Um, again, how often we do that for kids and do we give ourselves the gift of time to, to reflect and be metacognitive and the, like the gift of getting better. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a joy to, to do all that. And I think um, we all need support, right? So I love those, that, those kind of layers of support that are built into the system. Absolutely. Can you speak a little bit more maybe to some of the structures of support um, that DPS has kind of like provided to make this program as successful as it has been? Yeah, um, there's a whole curriculum, if you will, for um, team leads and senior team leads. Um, they come in and get trained on um, all the kinds of things that are being asked of them in their job. So how to lead a strong data team, how to support um, our push this year is really um, unit and lesson internalization. Um, it's, it looks a lot like backward planning, but <laughs> it sounds like uh, we've made it more personal if you internalize something. Um, there's support on how to have challenging conversations with the teachers um, that these leaders are supporting. Uh, I was involved in lots of the work with like how to go in um, to give fair evaluations to folks. And I think the positive of it all is like, yes, we're growing adult leaders, and it's all with the goal of like improving student outcomes and student experience, right? Like it's not a checklist of things that you do to be good at this role. It's how do we support teachers to get better for kids. You just mentioned that uh, kind of a piece of this or a part of this is to make sure that you have, are, we're providing or DPS is providing as fair and equitable of a system as possible for evaluations. Um, and you were there in the beginning of when their current framework was developed. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I was, a, I was actually a teacher under the system the first couple of years. My best story is early, early on being observed because it was the new cool thing, but those buildings are so sweltering. Like picture August, principal comes in to observe me. I'm teaching. All I can think about is like, will sweat literally drip down my face because it's so hot here. I don't care what my scores are. Just don't let sweat drip down my face. <laughs> yeah. So I was a teacher with the system and then went on to be a peer observer using the, the um, LEAP framework. Can you share a little bit about what the framework is like and maybe what the evolution of it has been like? Yeah, it's a pretty big evolution. Um, Lots of stakeholders were involved in developing it so that lots of voices could be heard and uh, consensus reached. It's, um, I, I just always picture like, it's a, it's, a, it's a pie system. There's a pie graph where there's different percentages of different components that go into a teacher's overall evaluation. The most um, powerful purpose behind it for me is that like we have studies that show that strong like, like that strong teaching can be measured and strong teaching directly equates with stronger student achievement so like that's a given but there isn't like one right way to go about strong teaching so this is the leap system tries to account for that um, the biggest part that teachers experience is observations with a framework that takes into account instructional moves and also what students do. So like teachers do certain things, but like with what results from students. Part of their evaluation is student perception surveys. So what is that student experience like? They have some professionalism goals and criteria that they work towards. And then the other big half, of course, is student achievement. 
Um, so it tries to bring all these factors together. Uh, we talk about whole student a lot. Like I like to think this is like trying to capture the whole teacher and what they do well. I think maybe another unique part is the ability for teachers to receive um, feedback in all those areas from more than just one person, while often an administrator or teacher leader if, is their evaluator or coach, there's opportunities um, to be observed by other folks. And that was the peer observer role for many years. I think too, the, it, with its best intentions, LEAP was designed as both a um, performance and growth system. So it could really be, has the potential to be used as a coaching tool. I've seen teachers that um, own that really well uh, and use it as guidance to, to get better. I know I really appreciated the depth and comprehensiveness of so many of the things that, you know, good teaching um, can and should look like both from the, the teacher side of things and from the student side of things. So it did a great job of like kind of preparing me to um, look for some of these like common things. How were some of the domains and indicators actually kind of decided upon? Do you have insight into that? Yeah, at the very beginning, it was a huge, it was like a huge, huge framework. I think like 21 indicators or something. Um, I think for teachers and observers that felt like really checklisty, like must do all these things to be a good teacher versus um, when they consolidated it, um, really trying to be research-based in picking out like the instructional strategies, um, the learning environment conditions that we know support student learning. Um, so the framework's divided into those areas. There's learning environment conditions, um, so that really are looking at some culturally responsive pieces, um, some social emotional pieces um, that teachers put in place for students to feel safe and to thrive. And then there's instructional pieces, like what um, does research say um, activates students' minds the best and truly leads um, to student success. Um, listeners out there, I mean, it's a really great framework. It's called the LEAP framework again. Um, check it out on DPS. It is, it's public. Um, it's super comprehensive, really informative stuff there. Um, Marnie, one thing I've also noticed too is that DPS has done a pretty great job of maintaining some consistency and fairness across the board. How are you able to help support this calibration across the entire district? Yeah. Um, well, I'll say when the LEAP framework is intended to be uh, content and grade level agnostic so that uh, there were conditions that we think apply to, to all learners and all teachers. That being said, we know there are some um, certain considerations for other, other places. So there's, um, there are appendices for certain areas like our youngest learners, um, specials type of classes, those sorts of things. Um, and then DPS has maintained a pretty um, consistent central presence in ensuring that anyone who is observing and evaluating with the framework is trained with consistent practices. Each year, those observers have to be kind of recalibrated. So they, the school teams go through calibration sessions to um, ensure that what one observer uh, rates at a certain level is consistent in their school. So teachers have a fair experience with all that. Um, the system also allows for some teacher voice. If uh, a teacher feels a certain way about scores they receive, they can, they can provide that input. Um, I think too, like in best case scenario, 
it becomes a it becomes a coaching system too, so that there's an agreement about what good teaching looks like, not just among the observers, but among teachers. That it's really um, an explicit process and an explicit kind of understanding and expectation. How much room for subjectivity is there? And it's a seven point scale for a lot of things, and so is there is there room for that? Yeah, there is. There's like as often as much as you try to say like, oh, it's it's a uh, it's uh it's not subjective. No, 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 no. Like everyone comes with their lenses to um to see things and to expect certain things. And uh, the system, I think, as it has evolved, has tried to do better and better about providing examples of what certain criteria actually look like in the classroom so as to widen definitions versus narrow them. Marnie, I want to get into um, both of the roles that you've sort of had recently. Um, let's dig in first with your peer observer role. Sure. Um, can you kind of describe a little bit more details about what that peer observer role looked like on maybe a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? Yeah. I got uh, the privilege of going to see lots and lots of secondary language arts and social studies classrooms. Um, I'd often go uh, watch teachers teach um, and then be providing some feedback, whether that was with those scores on the LEAP framework or just feedback, really focused on helping a teacher recognize their own strengths and then some places where they could grow. Um, A real benefit of the job that I didn't think about initially was that seeing all those classrooms gave me an eye into um, seeing great practices that could be shared across the district. So often teachers um, are pretty isolated, right? You teach in your classroom, maybe you get to see someone down the hall every once in a while, but to just share practices, especially positive if uh, teachers were using a district curriculum. So like, oh, at that book, at the school across the way, they're doing da-da-da-da-da-da, these sorts of things. Um, Got into, as the teacher leadership program developed, got into more and more supporting teacher leaders as they did a lot of that work too. So um, the best part of that job was definitely like, forming really genuine relationships with folks that led to some positive coaching for their own growth and then eventually for, for student growth. You're very natural at that part of it. Um, Marnie, I do want to ask, um, what, are, so what were some of the biggest challenges um, that you sort of faced during this time as a peer observer? And maybe what were some of the approaches that you found most effective in overcoming these challenges? Yeah, well, like any system, um, The system itself can only be so good. It's the implementation (laughs) that makes or breaks things. Um, Well, I can say there was a pretty positive implementation of LEAP district-wide. We see, you you definitely saw anomalies in certain schools. So um, certain schools would use the LEAP system in certain ways um, that didn't feel great. Like um, they wanted a teacher to be encouraged to leave the district, they would use the system to do that, which is is bad for the system, right? Um, So those were challenging um, places to step into. Um, There was a time too, and we worked with um, teachers who were in like remediation situations, um, kind of like last ditch effort to help them improve. Um, And I'll just say like really personally, that was, was so hard to see kids be be harmed instructionally um 
socially, emotionally, like um, that made, that made, that was just really, really hard times. I think it's um, hard also to work with teachers who have their own stuff going on that haven't been able to share that and then feel like ex these um, really high expectations are being placed on them. It sure um, made a case for me about like self-care, like how do we expect folks to teach if they're not being taken care of themselves? Um, I often think about like, especially with some of the culturally responsive work I'm doing, are teachers receiving the same thing we're asking them to give to, to kids? Um, and in the most professional settings, that should be happening. Any tips and tricks that you picked up along the way to mitigate some of these things? And what did you learn in your time as a peer observer was like most effective in helping support to make this um, program or the system, I guess, as positive and supportive as possible? The best case scenarios are when teachers could come alongside whoever it was, me or um, leaders, as true like thought partners in getting better when there was investment to do that. Um, when the system became not a gotcha, but a true like empowering kind of um, document or system that was like gonna help me grow. Of course, the best, the best best for a teacher is when like they try something new and there's a really positive result for students. So when there are opportunities for us to show teachers that was happening, um, that's, that's when, when the work works the best. <laughs> I think too, a biggest like duh takeaway again is like treating a coaching or evaluation relationship as a student kind of a mirroring a student teacher relationship which um we do lots of like good relationship building getting to know folks differentiating and so like when i was able to do that with teachers um to hear their voices and be really responsive to their direct needs um to highlight their direct strengths a lot more growth occurred the modeling, modeling, modeling just kind of comes to mind. We're talking about all this. And one of my previous guests, Michael Seguero, was kind of just sharing how his most effective approaches too are, are really similar. Like you're trying to like focus on in on those strengths, like as an asset-based approach instead of a gotcha, instead of like, okay, there's these deficits that we have to fill these gaps. And like, okay, I'm going to start with what is going well and build upon that um, as much as possible while doing that, you know, side by side with the person. Yeah, I've found a lot of times teachers don't recognize their own strengths or don't see their strengths as having impact. Like, oh, yeah, I've always just been good at that. Da, 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 da. Oh, yeah, isn't everyone good at that? But when they could, um, again, kind of slow down and have the gift of some reflection time, they could see like, when I did this, this student did that and that student wouldn't have produced that if i didn't go through that instructional move or whatever it might be yeah I've, i'm sure you found that a lot of times and lots of research says that people look to the negative things first right. maybe just ignore some of those positive things but if those things aren't explicitly named and you know they may not necessarily be intentionally replicated in the future right yeah yeah and then there's teachers can make such great correlations between like, oh, what do I do in that situation? Oh, these are my steps. Oh, could I apply that to X, to the assessment, to whatever the thing is that I'm wanting to get better at? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, compare and contrast uh, your peer observer role to your current role as the secondary literacy specialist. 
Well, I'm not, I'm not typing as fast because I'm not uh, uh, doing like full scored observations of things. Um, there's been some freedom to that. Um, I still find though that the instructional kind of learning I got to experience as a peer observer comes in really handy. So um, I've focused a bit more on training teacher leaders, training um, school leaders with like what is best literacy instruction. DPS has really gone to a text first approach, which is super positive. A little more like philosophical, I guess, behind things. Um, doing a little more looking at big picture in terms of year-long planning, unit planning. But then once we get to the daily, it looks a lot like um, what I was doing as a peer observer, like uh, I find a lot of teachers are bought into the philosophical kind of backing of text first, of culturally responsive teaching, but the how is really uh, what people are grappling with and still trying to get a handle on. So when we think about the instructional moves of teaching literacy well, um, that's where a lot looks similar to me in um, sharing resources with teachers, sharing best practices we see. Um, I've gotten to do a little more teaching, <laughs> like model teaching. Last year, this year, I'm uh, doing some long-term subbing during COVID, which is like the best thing in the world for me, right? Like, can I, can I practice what I preach? And then what do I learn from there that I um, can share? Absolutely. Dig in a little bit more to some of these focuses that you guys have had. You've already mentioned the text first approach. You've already mentioned unit and lesson internalization. Um, anything that you could elaborate on of like, what are these approaches and why? The biggest like shift in my own thinking came through this text first approach. It comes from um, David and Meredith Lieben, um, who also helped write the Common Core Standards. Um, it's a shift in thinking for me and for teachers. We're moving away from teaching literacy skills in isolation and more towards teaching great grade level um, complex texts and then helping students then access the standards and the skills they need to, to read these great things. DPS was really focused on the opportunity myth that came out a couple of years ago. That was a TNTP study that said um, many of our students, especially our black and brown students, were never receiving grade level materials. When they did, they rose to the occasion and did it, but several kids went all year without seeing a grade level text or task. Um, so the DPS approach now is then, so we're gonna do that. Like grade level text should be in front of kids every single day. And so that shifts things as an educator. My job becomes how to help kids access those texts well and then be able to analyze them. It's really compelling stuff for me because it makes sense when they've, they've done studies on standardized tests. Our kids don't miss questions because they can't do a certain skill. Like they don't go through and be like, oh, they missed every uh, theme question. <laughs> they miss questions on reading tests because the reading is hard. <laughs> like that text was too hard for me to access. So I missed a bunch of questions on that particular text. So it just makes our goal um, one of getting kids A, reading more, reading at grade level, and then being able to do something with those texts. Um, so the shift in instruction looks more like lots of close reading, lots of text-based questions, and then 
yes, doing some instruction um, when we see gaps in students' ability to read at, at those levels. So that's really exciting stuff. Then that lends itself well to um, planning in a way that supports that. So we look at um, unit internalization in terms of like, what are the most compelling things we want kids to get out of this text and what will they need, need to be able to do that. Um, also fits really closely with um, a lot of the CRE work going on at the district where um, we've been focused on Zaretta Hammond, which is um, CRE, 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 CRT, these are interchangeable, and the brain. So like brain research about how um, diverse students, but also all students learn. Um, we've just moved into as a literacy team reading through um, Cultivating Genius by Goldie Muhammad. Yeah, so good, <laughs> so good. Um, and that fits also with um, the district's um, Black Excellence Resolution. So this year um, came out in the spring, but this year every school has developed a Black Excellence Plan. Really um, exciting to see schools focused on lifting up the excellence that is already there in students versus remediate, remediate, remediate. And that really makes sense then with this literacy approach, like my kids, come with this rich liter literary, literary background and history. So we're gonna read amazing things that they're gonna talk about and connect to their lives in meaningful ways. So much to ask about, about <laughs> things that you just mentioned here, but. Uh, I would never, I love all those books. I'd never remember them. So I have to like write down <laughs> all their names and stuff. So thanks for letting me use my notes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Dig a little bit more into, into Goldie Muhammad's framework from yeah. Cultivating Genius. Yeah, I love it. Um, I've just, the, the premise is that um, historically, especially um, Black folks were like really invested in developing their own literacy as a way to like advance in the world so like yes it was to get better at reading and writing but it was really for things like getting better jobs and economic freedom and like being heard during movements um, and creating creating beautiful uh, works of art right so um that's like the goal like how do we create those experiences for our students within a classroom it's just like it's beautiful to me. Like <laughs> it's so exciting, fiction, and like talk about what that means to us right now, and in your family, and in your world. Um, like that's the that's part of the shift to me. And it's so connected to that opportunity myth as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, can you say um, a little bit more about what your district, what DPS, maybe? working on and shifting when it comes to any of the culturally responsive teaching or education. Um, I think we're at a place where there's been lots and lots of educating happening um, at all the different levels, um, lots of book studies, and um, we have gone through equity modules, and like now is the time for action. So I think the um, Black Excellence Plans especially are one way to get towards that. I'm finding in my work with teachers, again, like this full-hearted belief <laughs> in, in CRE and some like hunger for the how. So I've been working with teachers a lot in like developing menus. Not that, they, like, again, it's not a checklist, but like there are lots of ways to be culturally responsive. I've used one article from Zaretta Hammond a lot that's like three ways 
to make any lesson more culturally responsive like that, you know, and it like it's gamify it, storify it, make it social, those kinds of things. So like finding a lot of it is like giving teachers permission <laughs> to like try these new things that yes, are also culturally responsive. So I think that's the work where we are right now. Um, specifically in literacy too, we've been working with um, some critical lens work too. So not only do we want our students reading um, at these high levels, we want them reading critically. Um, and that fits a lot of the, the culturally responsive questions around like, who wrote this text? Who was this text written for? It was really interesting. We use expeditionary learning and they um, were pulling To Kill a Mockingbird this year after events of this summer. Um, and then we worked with Dr. Tanya Leslie and she was like, I love that book. Let's rewrite the curriculum and have kids read it critically. So that's what we're doing. Like rather than um, kind of this, I guess that's the cancel culture, right? Like mm -hmm. can we shift and help both teachers and students be critical about what's out there. Um, there's also been lots of movement to truly diversify curriculum more. Um, social studies just totally rewrote US history. It's happening constantly with some of our um, literacy classes. We can teach kids to read critically and we can also include more diverse voices and perspectives in what we read. I love the idea of um, we need to give our kids the gifts of windows and mirrors, like mirrors to see themselves and windows to see into other worlds. Like a good curriculum would do that well. The passion that you have in your voice behind this is, is awesome. This is so such exciting work. Anything that you can specifically name in any of these curriculums that you can see is like, okay, this is something that is different than what we once had or a really intentional move, I guess. I don't know a ton, but watching my own kids um, go through the U.S. history piece, it's just, um, it's not textbook anymore. It's um, reading from different sources and often reading different pieces. Like they read um, uh, different views of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> like, was he really this uh, uh, great revolutionary, we thought? And like, why, why not? Why did he make the decisions he made? And then having to write critically about something like that is awesome. Um, we haven't gotten very far in the work yet with To Kill a Mockingbird, but I'm so excited for like what that looks like. I think part of it is going to be having kids place these lenses, if you will, on certain passages. So we have a students read a short passage and respond to like, who do you think wrote this? Who was the intended audience? What was the, what were the um, historical conditions of that time and what has changed now? So that's exciting for me that like, yes, we're teaching kids to read at high levels and like it's the thinking, right? And that's what, that's what matters. Very much. Um... I don't know if those types of questions were ever posed to me, but right. I'm now thinking about those types of things all the time. So I think it's so, so great that we're putting those types of critical thinking lenses onto our students at this point in time. Yeah, I heard someone the other day say, like, if you didn't, if you weren't asked those type of questions till you got to college, like something was missing. Like we know our students, um, a, are capable of thinking that way and be like totally deserve it like um, much earlier on and they can do it. Um, got two more questions for you, Marnie. Sure. Um, thinking about anything, I guess, in your past, um, what would you consider to be your best failure? Mm, that's a great question. 
I think uh, one of my final years in, uh, in the classroom as a teacher was, <laughs> I'll, I'll label it a failure right now. Um, it was, this is a philosophy I have, teachers never leave the classroom because of kids. <laughs> it's always adult junk. Um, and it was like the worst adult junk I'd ever experienced. Um, just so messy on a structural level, on a support level, um, felt really alone. Like I was one of the only ones with certain expectations <laughs> and thinking things should happen a certain way. And even though I showed up Every day for kids, I know I was not at my best. Like that had such an impact on me. I remember a few mornings, like going to the parking lot, like being like, like having to wait to get out of my car, maybe even shedding a tear or two, because it was like so hard to walk into a place um, that felt that way. Um, and I, you know, kids can feel that, right? Like I really picked that up as an observer. I can walk in a classroom and there's like a feel and you can tell if kids trust that teacher, if kids are learning from that teacher, you can feel it so quickly. So, um, I feel horribly that like, I didn't show up as my best for those kids. Um, but, and I think I learned a ton from that situation about how to, how to support adults better. So they don't have to feel that way and can show up as their, as their best selves for kids. So what would you give as your big advice for other humble badass educators? Mm. I think, uh, it's, it's, it's so basic, <laughs> but that, maybe it's okay. Like, I know we say it all the time, but I just like truly, truly believe and live by that like relationships are, are at the core, have to be at the core of everything we do and are what matters. Um, I think like that leads to, leads to two-way growth. That leads to um, trust, to planting seeds, to all these things that we're trying to do. And to me, like all these um, very worthy goals we're trying to achieve can never happen without really genuine complementary relationships. And that's like on all levels, right? Like adult to adult, adult to student. Um, that's, that's where, that has to be like the foundation for everything. Absolutely. Um, Marnie, I, I do want to thank you. Um, first of all, for all of your time here today, I have once again, like taken a lot of really great suggestions and advice from you here today. Um, I've learned a lot from you um, in the past. And I learned a lot from you in just this short amount of time. I'm super excited about this work that you are, are all working on. And they, you, are, you are such a great person to be able to like help to move this work forward and helping people to get some of the hows to make these big movements really, this big movement really work. And so I just wanted to thank you for your time again. And it was so great catching up with you. Well, thank you so much. I, I always gain a lot from every conversation with you. And this was really fun. Thank you for tuning in to Humble Badass Educators. Again, the biggest goal of this podcast is to share the transformative ideas of what can work in the world of education. So if you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to share a link to this episode with someone you think may also be interested in hearing these ideas. If you or someone you know is also a humble badass educator, I'd love to hear from you as I continue my quest in learning about the amazing things that are happening out there right now. Know that the term educator is not just school-based. An educator is anyone that helps another person learn. 
Until next time, this has been Jeremy Jensen with Humble Badass Educators. Thanks for listening.